0: the um, committee and the audience. I believe we will get started. It's a couple minutes past six.
1: We'll call roll then. Uh, Member Porter.
2: Present.
1: Camp. He announced he was absent last week. Shaw. Here. Hanson. Here. Mottmans. Here. Bowler. Here. Fry Lucas. Here. Naviglio. Here. Hom. Here. Perry. Pluckybaum. He sent an email that he was going to miss tonight's meeting. Wallace. Here. Rubicaba, Here. Leo Curio. Here. And our chair, Julius Cherry. Here. We have a quorum. I have a couple of announcements as well. Um, For those in the audience, if you have a cell phone, if you could please turn it to the silent position. Speaker slips are located in the back of the room. If you wish to speak, please complete one and turn it in to the assistant clerk here at the front. And we also have cordless microphones and assisted listening devices should you need them. Thank you.
0: I think that brings us to item one, our weekly report
3: from staff. Uh, Good evening, Chair Cherry. Um, Scott Mendy with staff. Uh, Firstly, I'd like to talk a little bit about the media articles on redistricting that we had last week. Um, You may have seen uh, each of the members today received a note from the city clerk uh, to the publisher of Inside East Sacramento with regard to some factual errors in the May edition um, regarding uh, redistricting. One of those was that the increase of 59,740 people is a 14.6 percent increase. The article had uh, in error reported that as a 5 percent increase between 2000 and 2010. The article also aired in stating that no eligible Latino applicants stepped forward during the PNPE process, but in fact we have uh, two uh, Latinas on our, uh, on our committee. Uh, We also had a press release that was issued on May 4th, identifying May 16th as the deadline for submittal of maps. The Sacramento News and Review on May 5th had an article entitled, The District, GLBT and uh, Business Groups Want Downtown and Midtown to Have Just One City Council Member. And it also identified May 16th as the deadline sacramento press on may 4th identified may 16th as the deadline and uh, i think that was it um, on the um, just a little bit more on this publication of the 16th deadline the committee last uh, week had instructed us to do everything possible to get the word out we have updated our uh, main web page the redistricting webpage sent a message to all registered users of the software, revised the flyer with the date uh, of May 16th and sent it on to the committee members, sent a reminder to all 4,500 people on the Neighborhood Services List, uh, sent reminder reminder notices to Betty Williams of the NAACP, issued flyers to the Sacramento State Union, um, had flyers located in the City Hall Library, and change the flyers in the libraries and community center to reflect uh, the due date. Um, also, by way of community outreach, we had um, a, the Sacramento State Political Service Class, a presentation, and a special announcement for tonight. Um, City IT Manager Maria McGonigal, who is late because she is presently accepting the 2011 Best of California Outstanding IT Service and Support Award from the Government Technology Conference, Western Region, and the Center for Digital Government. Uh, and, And the title of that is Recognizing the Tireless Work of Those Who Work Day After Day as Team Members, Team Leads, IT Project Leads, and Managers Upholding the Highest Standards of Public Service. So it's quite an honor. And Maria will be along after she gets her picture taken and and the necessary congratulations. So that re- that concludes my report.
0: Thank you, Steve, uh, for that re- Scott. report. I'm Scott. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of Steve. I'm about to say something, um, <laughs> Steve, politely. Um, thank you, Scott, for the report. I wanted to thank um, Member Moviglio for pointing out the inaccuracies um, <clears throat> in the article, uh, errors I assume they were, um, and just let everybody know, including um, members, that um, the clerk has agreed that when we as a body see that, if you, it's brought to our attention, staff will immediately send out something from the city so that it comes from all of us, um, correcting any inaccuracies we see in any of, any of the publications. So thank you very much, um, Steve, for that.
1: Okay, we're on to item number two, which is the Sacramento redistricting history.
3: Kim, if I could get you to activate the uh the uh, laptop. So it's my voice again. Um, This is Item 2, which is the City Redistricting History. My presentation will briefly touch on some of the key themes of Sacramento's redistricting history. And in, in addition to some chronological discussion, I'll also synthesize some key topics that were presented in the Primer. In 1921, the City of Sacramento Charter established a nine-member council with members elected at large, and the mayor was selected from among those nine council members. In 1970, the voters of Sacramento amended the charter to provide for election of the mayor at large and eight council members by district. So this is the original boundaries in 1971. Note the geographic extent of District 1, which extended south of U.S. 50 at the western edge of the city and extends east to the city limits at Howe Avenue. Also notice District 8, quite a bit different from today, which includes all of the pocket and all of Meadowview. Amazing what a little population growth will do. Um, This is in 1981. Uh, Major changes occurred in the Midtown area, Point West and Cal Expo, Swanson Estates, CSUS, which used to be part of District 6, became part of District 3. Uh, South Tallack Park shifted. Maple School Park neighborhood, Little Pocket. Freeport Manor went from District 7 to District 4. And substantial portions of Meadowview shifted between District 8 and District 7. I should note here my apologies that in your primer and staff report I had put a little note saying insert these maps and I forgot to insert them. So um, the city clerk is putting a supplemental packet together uh, that includes these maps. uh, But that's why I'm spending a little time on them now. So in 1991, again, there were fairly major changes. Uh, including the River Oaks area, or Willow Creek, was annexed into the city and into District 1. Uh, A whole series of other changes, probably the most notable of which is the the flip between Districts 7 and District 8, uh, especially affecting the pocket. And this looks actually fairly similar to the way that those districts are configured today. In 2001, uh, there were some minor changes. The Hagenwood and Bed-Ali neighborhood shifted from District uh, 2 to District 3. And the Alhambra Triangle shifted from District 5 to District 6. And North Elmhurst shifted from District 5 to District 6. So a little bit about the population uh, history here. When the council districts were first established in 1971, Each council member represented an average of 31,801 people. The variance between the maximum district and the minimum district was less than 1%. Clearly, the council took the equal population requirement very much to heart. The variance in 2001 exceeded 10%, which exceeds generally accepted practice. In this 2001 redistricting effort, each council member will be tasked with representing an average of 58,311 people. That represents a 14.6 percent growth in population between the 2000 census and the the 2010 census. Today's population represents an 83 percent increase in the persons per district compared to the 31,801 persons per district when the districts were first established in 1970. In 1971, there were six maps that were introduced by a committee. The council adopted the map after one meeting, following that committee's recommendation. Uh, and that was the last time the council dealt with anything quite so quickly regarding redistricting. In 1981, the community was provided with a do-it-yourself packet. It was non-electronic. Essentially, I, I don't even know if they had calculators, or if they were still using Abacus or slide SlideReel back then. There was no redistricting committee. Uh, and perhaps reflecting the challenges in using that packet, there were only eight maps submitted uh, by the community, five of which were for one district only. So they said, I only know my district, so here's district one, um, and I'll let somebody else address the others. Staff was encouraged to submit their independently conceived maps, and that was the last time that happened. In 1991, uh, staff was precluded from submitting maps until after the public maps were analyzed. The do it yourself software was available now on a floppy disk, uh, which most computers, of course, will not read anymore. Um, uh, The big changes were the flip in districts between seven and eight and the Metaview consolidation. One council member, that was Lynn Roby was drawn out of her district. And Councilmember Costanis faced a recall election, uh, election, but he did retain his seat. So that was the wild times uh, redistricting. And then in 2001, the software was easier to use. It was on a CD. It resulted in 13 maps from the community. Uh, there was an attempt to minimize big changes despite the increased population, which resulted in a larger population variance. So echoing the themes offered by this retrospective of Sacramento re- redistricting history, here's some questions to ponder about history. We'll view what we're doing today. One is, as the number of maps varies depending on ease of use and perceived opportunity for change. How many maps will be submitted this time? The population variance uh, variation between districts was tightly controlled in 1971 with progressively greater variances. Where will we land at this time? The original districts in 1971 were drawn with the help of a committee. In 1981, 1991, and 2001, the vetting role was undertaken by staff and the council. With the reintroduction of the redistricting committee, how will the process be different this time? And lastly, the role of staff has generally been limited to assisting the council with outreach and analysis rather than submitting maps in the early phases of the process. Will the committee provide sufficiently high-quality recommendations to the council? That concludes my presentation. Any questions?
0: By the way, I was a city employee in 1981, and yes, we had calculators.
4: <laughs>
0: um, if I might just take a, a moment of privilege and say congratulations to Maria. We heard about the Is that the award that you have? Can you hold it up? Do you have it with you? It looks like it's pretty heavy. <laughs> congratulations. And now, are there questions um, for staff from committee members? Member Porter.
5: Just real quick, Scott, um, do we have an update on the number of maps that we've received since the last meeting? Is there any difference? I'll
3: defer that to you. I believe it's fourteen now.
6: Uh, Fourteen maps.
3: With one week to go.
0: Other questions? Okay. That concludes this number item two.
1: Okay. Our next item is three: the neighborhoods as a redistricting criterion.
7: Good evening, Uh, Derek Lim with Neighborhood Services. Um, Thanks. Neighborhoods. We all live in them, and uh, we've all heard a lot about them. They're they're the building blocks uh, for our city. Uh, So I'm going to. I'll go over a little presentation uh, uh, with with respect to neighborhoods. We're guided by the city charter with how neighborhoods um, relate to the redistricting. And if we could just step back for a moment, um, you know, the charter talks about uh, factors which need to be taken into consideration in redistricting. Um, so as, as the meetings have progressed, the primers have been provided um, outlining those, those areas and going into some detail. And tonight we'll, we'll be looking at uh, neighborhoods and also uh, communities of interest. Um, so with respect to uh, neighborhoods, you know, there's a long history in the city um, with respect to neighborhoods. And we, we look at neighborhoods in a wide variety of ways. So the, the map that you see here now is um, on uh, community planning areas. Community planning areas are used by, by planners, uh, by um, Parks and Recreation, uh, a number of different uh, departments. And back in 1960, in terms of history, um, the city... Adopted 21 community plans, quite quite ambitious, and then in 1970 they they scaled back to 11, and with the um, adoption of the 2030 general plan, uh, the city took the opportunity to uh, update community plan areas and settled on 10. So there were there were updates um, in, ter- in terms of uh, Policy reorganization, et, et cetera. So we're currently at uh, ten community plans. Uh, currently, how are, how are neighborhoods defined? Um, you know, there, there are a lot of different uh, definitions, um, and for our purposes, you know, we're, we're looking primarily at, at a place that where people live and there's uh, social interaction. A place where there are characteristics that distinguish it from uh, surrounding areas, you know. And I don't need to tell you, you know, neighborhoods are are dynamic; they don't stand still. They 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 evolve, um, they change. So when we look at uh, boundaries, um, you know, a number of things can be can be looked at, and people. Uh, uh, The definitions can take various forms. Um, You know, residents will will define their their neighborhood. Neighborhood groups will will do that. Um, We can also look to subdivision maps. When applications come in Uh, and and there will be developments, that is a source of identifying uh, a neighborhood. Uh, Parcel maps. uh, Welcome signs. You you see those quite a bit in, in many different neighborhoods. There are also uh, community facilities that may be landmarks uh, that define a a neighborhood. We have business corridors, several business corridors, and business improvement districts. There are redevelopment areas, and we also have council districts. So as as you can see, there's really no one way. It's part art and part science as we look at all these bits of information. Um, to uh, d- define uh, the boundaries of a neighborhood, this map is the map that's uh, currently being used um, for uh, redistricting purposes. And, you know, it should be a general reference only. There are corresponding um, population estimates based on the 2010 census block data. And they don't necessarily align with neighborhood boundaries. Neighborhood associations uh, may also define their, their neighborhood differently. And um, we let neighborhood groups define their own boundaries. So they may or may not coincide uh, with other general uh, boundary definitions. But neighborhood association boundaries uh, may also be a legitimate redistricting consideration as a community of interest. Now obviously we want to try to keep neighborhoods uh, intact as much as possible. And um, in this slide you can see in the last redistricting a portion of a neighborhood. was, was put in another council district. Um, but obviously the goal is to try to keep um, neighborhoods as, as whole as, as possible. Um, and um, that pretty much concludes my, my presentation. Um, I believe there might be some speakers who might want to speak on this item as well. Um.
0: Yes, we do have a speaker on this item. Before you leave the podium, I have one quick question. Um, Derek, how many um, neighborhood associations does the city currently have yeah, that's a, that's a really good question um,
7: there are well over a hundred uh, in terms of neighborhood groups um, neighborhoods neighborhood associations and it has grown I, I've been with the city uh, quite some time and and I dare say that uh, in a p- very positive uh, note that uh, neighborhood groups have, have grown tremendously, as well as business groups and uh, neighborhood watch groups.
0: Other Other questions? Uh, and, of course, Derek is still going to be available after the speaker. But other questions now from me- member Bowler.
8: Uh, <clears throat> I was looking at this, uh, the neighborhood map, and it's a good map, and I, I also tried to find a…
9: And, uh, an overlay that had the city council districts today that overlays this. Do you have that? That would be available for us as well.
7: I believe that is available. Yes, Maria.
6: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure if it's on the website, but if it's not, we can add it.
2: Okay. Thank you, Member Shaw. Uh, thank you, Chair. Um, more of a. A, more of a comment than a, than a question, but I wanted to pick up on something that, uh, that you pointed out that I, I think is important to note, um, is that looking at this neighborhood map, it is sliced and diced into some very small – there are some very small neighborhoods um, that are on there, some large as well. Um, and I think that a neighborhood can be defined by geog- geographic band- boundaries like highways and rivers, um, style of architecture, age that the – you know, year that the, the infrastructure and the homes were built. Um, But I also want to point out that there's, even though there's distinct neighborhoods, there's commonality between neighborhoods that are adjacent to one another, Um, and particularly when there's neighborhoods that are adjacent to multiple uh, neighborhoods, then I think it's important to um, try to keep those neighborhoods as cohesive as possible. Um, so I, I, I like the idea of using, and I think we have to use, some geographic boundaries, the rivers, the freeways, um, but then when we get down to the, the nitty-gritty, I, I think it's important to recognize issues like transportation and safety um, and, and issues that would be common to a multiple uh, number of neighborhoods. So thanks for pointing that out.
0: Member Modiglio.
5: Last week I had a concern about our software being pre-cut by district already in terms of people drawing new maps. And I guess I live in one of these neighborhoods that is searching for identity because on one of your maps we were in East Sacramento and the other one we weren't. Um, So I I am just wondering, um, now that we're looking at this a little further and the issue of census tracts, which you mentioned last week, how census tracts play into our deliberation in terms of what a neighborhood is? Do you have an answer for that? Or is that a little above the pay grade? I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> let Maria
7: take the first uh, okay. stab at that.
6: <laughs> Hold up your award. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make a necklace out of it. The, um, <laughs> well, census tracts generally don't play a role. Um, they're fairly large. Census tracts are very large geographic units. Um, so census tract is the largest unit. Uh, census block groups are the next smallest, and then blocks are the smallest unit of census geography that we use, but um, they generally do not correspond to any of the uh, neighborhoods as they um, and there's some spatial alignment problems so, so they they can be helpful for um, certainly for understanding the data that 's being presented on these larger scales, but i don 't think that when we start looking at neighborhoods and how the community is organized that they will be very helpful.
0: Okay, we have uh, speakers, I believe, for this item.
1: Yes, we have several speakers. Some of them do not have numbers on them, so I'm going to assume that you meant them for this item. Um, the first speaker is John DeGlow, followed by Darrell Roberts, and then Nick Abdus. The timer is set for two
10: minutes. Three minutes. Three. Two. Two. Okay. Thank you. Good evening, Council or committee members. Uh, I'm John Diglo, uh representing the College Glen Neighborhood Association tonight. And uh, we are definitely in favor of neighborhoods as a criteria for uh, redistricting. Uh, uh, College Glen is, uh, has well-defined boundaries. We have the American River on the north, Folsom Boulevard on the south, Watt Avenue on the east, Howe Avenue on the south. Uh, we have ‑‑ we share a lot of common interests. We send our kids all to the same neighborhood elementary school. We shop at the same shopping center. We support the same little league and soccer teams in our community. Our association has been active in one form or another <coughs> since the uh, community was initially built, starting in the early 60s. Uh, it really gained momentum when Mayor Cernan wanted to put a transfer station for solid waste in our neighborhood. And uh, with that, uh, our organization grew to our current size of about 400 members. We distribute a quarterly newsletter to 2,900 residents in the uh, area, uh, using 40 different volunteer teams. Uh, We have a number of activities that we do on on a regular basis. We do jazz in the park with our council member in June. We have a national night out with fireworks. Uh, (laughs) Fire department uh, uh, approving uh, in also in June, around 4th of July. (laughs) And when the occasion is needed, we have candidate forums. We support neighborhood watch. We have monthly meetings of our board where we have, uh, on average, uh, 12 board members will will show up, plus members of the community if, if they have an interest and we review and comment on uh, our proposals from city planning and we remember the power and alliance our preference is to keep our current college glen area as defined on your planning maps uh, intact and uh, we're uh, ambivalent. Uh, we're happy to stay with uh, in sixth with uh, Council Member McCarty. Thank,
0: thank you for wrapping up for us.
10: Okay, or we'd be just as happy with, with uh, Councilmember Cohen. Well, we we don't we don't make any deci-
0: we we can't make any decision based on whose Council Member this you're in. But we I, we heard you okay. loud and clear Point regarding is, college grants. I understand. Keep,
10: keep us as a functioning unit. Undes- understand. Thank you,
1: Daryl Roberts.
9: Good evening, Chairman, members of the Commission. My name is Daryl Roberts, and I'm representing the African American Leadership Coalition. The AAOC is a group of 60 African American uh, individuals and community groups that are uh, committed to working on behalf of the uh, families and residents of historical African American communities and beyond. Uh, tonight uh we'll arise simply to, to support uh, actually our last speaker but also uh, with Commissioner Cyr- Cyril mentioned in terms of keeping intact those traditional neighborhoods. As we have seen them historically, those neighborhoods have been uh, Oak Park. Meadowview, Del Paso Heights, but also more, more recently the South Natomas and North Natomas communities, uh, recognizing that both of those areas have a higher, uh, have a higher percentage of African Americans presently living there. Uh, we're presently working on possibly two maps, and maybe there's a third that's we're trying to consolidate and come back to you sometime this week. We're also planning to meet with two or three other coalitions to discuss how we can join forces and work to give, give you something that represents a broader perspective of uh, our community's interests. Uh, thank you for all of your work. We recognize that it's a tough job that you have in front of you. We thank you for serving. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Darrell. We appreciate it we look forward to, to hearing from the group.
1: Nick Abdus. Following Nick will be Rick Bettis.
11: Good evening, Mr. Chair, members of the Redistricting Committee. My name is uh, Nick Abdus. I'm here on behalf of the Valley View Acres Community Association, of which I currently serve as the president. For those of you who may not know, Valley View Acres is located in the North Natomas community on the east side along the Nemnek. Uh, north of I-80 and east of I-5. Our community is a a longstanding neighborhood. Uh, Within the city of Sacramento, we've been in District 1 since 1971, uh, being first annexed uh, into the city in the mid-60s. Primarily, we're comprised of ag res sort of uses. Um, Many of us still uh, uh, operate um, small-scale farming operations. My family has continually ranched uh, the area uh, since the late 1940s. I currently operate quite a few head of cattle, and I think I'm probably the only cattle production within the city limits. So I take some level of pride in that. Uh, The purpose for me uh, in being here this evening was to elaborate a little bit on Mr. Lim's point um, regarding the building blocks of our city, of which our neighborhoods are the very most essence of that, obviously. And uh, from our point of view, uh, Valley View Acres um, would like to express its strong desire to remain in District 1 um, uh, for a multitude of reasons. I understand I have a very limited time. A letter will be forthcoming, but at least as an introduction, uh, my neighborhood association feels that it identifies most with the North Natomas community. We shop. We play. We recreate. We enjoy all the amenities that North Natomas has to offer. Uh, Currently there are several issues on the horizon that could affect the integrity of our community, including uh, improvements to the NEMDEC uh, in accordance with the Natomas Levy Improvement Program portion of our neighborhood will be subject to an enlarged levy footprint which will affect quite a few residents. And we have been working closely with our current representative and we feel they have the institutional knowledge and history to best advocate for our causes. Um, uh, Two more points that I'd like to make. The Panhandle area, which has been in process for many, many, many years, uh, we think at some point is the most logical place for the city to grow. And obviously that element of uh, those land uses there will have the biggest effect, I think, on our community and its character. And we would most definitely like to, um, to stay in District 1 uh, along with the panhandle to be able to work through issues as we have in the past. And just one last point, uh, Mr. Chair, I'd like to say that uh, the Twin Rivers uh, School District uh, is in the process of constructing the ENIC project, the East Natomas Educational Complex, which has somewhat been mothballed. We have had uh, significant security issues as well as. Um, uh, roadway maintenance issues that we're working on. Okay, I'm going to have to ask you to wrap up. I appreciate your time this evening. Thank you.
1: Rick Bettis and then David Lindner will be our last speaker.
12: Uh, thank you, Chair, Cherry, and committee members. I, I applaud your efforts here. This is uh, showing good civic involvement, an uh, example for all of us. And I'm not speaking on behalf of any particular neighborhood Association. I live in the Fremont Park area, but I'm not active in an association. But I'm speaking from the perspective of, on well, citywide issues over the past quite a few years. I've done outreach to neighborhood associations. And one thing that I've learned that there's great differences. Some of them, as you've heard from earlier, are very active and very, very close-knit and do a lot in their neighborhood. Where others uh, tend to exist only on paper. I found that out in doing my outreach work. And so before you, you know, decide that a particular neighborhood boundary would be a, a place to draw the line, you, know, you should have staff maybe check to see if that's really a functional neighborhood association. Some of them are functional only in the sense that they have a two or three people that are quite active, uh, where others are very active, and especially the ones with, well, social and ethnic and economic uh, concerns in common. So that's just some thoughts based on my experience. So thank you.
0: Thank you for your comments, and thank you for giving us a minute back.
1: David.
13: Hello, Chairman and members of the committee. Thank you for having me. My name is David Lindner, pastor of Bridge of Life Church and member of the Gardenland Northgate Neighborhood Association and board member of the Greenhouse, a community enrichment center for youth and families in Gardenland Northgate. I'm here today to ask you to not forget Gardenland Northgate. I've been there for 10 years, and it is a very old and proud neighborhood with all of the um, all the marks of a community that we've talked about here tonight. Um, it was started in the 20s and 30s. Uh, my friend Joe Contreras is in his 50s, and his great-grandparents lived in the neighborhood. Uh, we consider our tremendous diversity there one of our greatest assets, and there has been a feeling there for many years that uh, the energy, the time, the money has tended to kind of skip by us. We have appreciated the efforts of Council Member Trethaway over the years. We have already appreciated Angelique Ashby and the things that she's already done. We don't know what is going to happen with redistricting. It seems the writing is on the wall. But we feel like uh, we may become a little bit of a football past here and there, and we don't know uh, what is going to happen, but uh, we remember when Natomas High School was built, and um, folks seemed to hear the city saying, here's a nice new high school, you can't go, even though it's a few blocks away. And so that feeling of being skipped over, we don't know, uh, you know, what the... District is going to – the district redistricting is going to do, but we just don't want to be lost in the shuffle. Remember Gardenland-Northgate. End. Thank
0: you. Thank you very much, Pastor. I
5: think
0: that was our last speaker on that issue, so uh, we'll – unless there are um, questions from members, we'll go to the next item. Um, I do have a question. Uh, Member Hanson?
4: Uh, I have a question for staff. Um, as we get into the map review process after next Monday, uh, will we use the map of the neighborhoods as one of the metrics to see whether neighborhoods are kept whole, or is there a different neighborhood metric that the city would be using? Does that makes sense. Under the criteria the city charter lays out, is this existing neighborhoods were important, um, but I guess. If we're saying that this map isn't perfect, then is there something that we would use to supplement this, or is this all we have? Yeah, that
6: that's the only geographic boundaries that are drawn. But um, so that is the map that we could use. But there's also uh, supplemental information, I would suppose, from the community that we would hear to use. But no um, specific matrix has so been um, established.
5: Member Porter. Um, just to follow up on that, how fluid are the neighborhood um, associations? So how difficult would it be for a particular association to um, expand or contract their physical boundaries? Um, it varies. Uh, and it varies because,
7: um, as one of the speakers mentioned, um, neighborhoods and neighborhood associations, they, they ebb and flow. Uh, so some are, are very active and engaged and others sometimes go through a period of transition and some become dormant for a while until new, new energy is infused in, into the neighborhood.
5: But um, what would the process be? Let, let's say if I belong to a neighborhood association, there was a neighboring dormant <coughs> association and we said, oh, nobody's there anymore, let's expand our boundaries because we're active. Is that a fairly... Easy, just contact city staff and say, Hey, we've decided we want to do this, or is there a process of those um, individuals that would be within the neighborhood having to agree upon it? Or,
7: the what we do is we (coughs) excuse me, we allow neighborhood groups to define themselves and to define their boundaries, Hmm. Um, they do not have to register, if you will, with the city. so, again, the city really d- doesn't have a role, per se. Um, you know, what we, we have a website, um, and in our website we do list neighborhood groups, and we, we tend to lean toward those that are, that are active and engaged. Um, we, we look uh, – and what we mean by that is, you know, we, we like to see neighborhood groups that uh, meet and are engaged in some capacity and, and have membership. Obviously, if it's just one individual, it's kind of, you know, hard to justify a um, representation. Uh, but, but the short answer is basically neighborhoods define their own boundaries. And, and some, quite frankly, we have several uh, examples where um, groups within the same neighborhood will claim the same boundaries. Mm-hmm. That, that does happen.
5: And then just one more question. Do you know the recency of the maps that we're looking at today that were being provided with the neighborhood? Um, And I assume that staff goes out and attempts to identify if it's the neighborhoods themselves that are self defining the boundaries, there has to be some effort on staff to identify those. And so, what's the recency?
6: You don't want me to take that there. The, well this, the map is updated regularly, but I just want to make sure that I make a clear distinction between the map that you see, which is neighborhood boundaries as they 're defined by the city right. and neighborhood associations which are defined by the community members and right. they 're very dynamic and right. they may be you know we may be aware of them or not aware of them the The map that you have before you and that 's available in the tool. Is um, updated as we know that there are issues, um, so it's it's actively updated. But it's um, been established for quite some time now, okay. maybe more than ten years. Just thinking
5: it. of all the different layers, as um, other members have mentioned, all the different layers of um, boundaries, whether they're set in city charter or whether they're fluid and set by the residents themselves. Yeah, we're going to have layer upon layer upon layer of. Um, Considerations. Mem- Member Holm.
14: DEREK, I have a quick question, um, and actually tagging on to Member Porter's um, follow-up question. Um, I'm part of District 1, and I'm also part of the Natomas Community Association. So our association is the umbrella encompassing all the different Natomas community – the sub – I guess you would call them kind of like sub-associations, Creekside, Natomas Park, South mm-hmm. Natomas. And all those. And our challenge is when we do this redistricting, it it may have to redefine our association. Um, you know, I'm just wondering how that would pan out because we know that District 1 has a huge population already. That could be already District 1, whereas the rest of South Natomas, you know, uh, would be broken up. How would that impact our association? Would we have to redraw our lines? Could we still encompass those? community associations in um, part of North Natomas?
7: I I think the short answer is yes. Um, again, uh, we, we leave it to um, neighborhood groups to define themselves and to define their boundaries. Um, but clearly, you know, there are um, in s- throughout the city um, several areas where there are, you know, subgroups within a, a larger group. Um, but in terms of de- defining boundaries, that, that's purely up to um, uh, the neighborhood group to, to do. And we, we do our best, uh, um, you know, at, at a staff level in, in terms of the overall general neighborhood, you know, uh, boundaries and characteristics, and um, it, it's uh, it's not an easy task uh, uh, because they're, they're And what we try to do is just take as much information as as possible to try to find as best fit as as we possibly can.
0: Member Ruvakalva.
15: I just had a clarifying question. You mentioned that some neighborhood associations will have overlapping or competing boundaries.
1: Yes. Um, Could you give me an example just so I understand a little bit more what we might be dealing with in that aspect?
7: Uh, Oh, gosh. Um, What's yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh,
0: while, while you're looking for example, I think uh, <laughs> think uh, Member Shaw has an example that he can enlighten us with. Thank,
2: thank you, Chair. Yeah, I actually have an example from my backyard. Is that uh, in East Sacramento, the East Sacramento Improvement Association is the oldest and largest neighborhood association in the city. It's been around for over 50 years, um, and it encompasses – its boundaries aren't quite as large as the neighborhood map, but but, but it is pretty large. Since then, um, there have been a couple other neighborhood associations that have popped up. One was issue-oriented um, about a specific issue that is now behind, somewhat behind them, and so they but they've stayed around. And then there's another that uh, um, that, that popped up because it wanted to represent um, an area of the neighborhood that uh, maybe had some unique, minor unique differences. So if a neighborhood can support three, we you know there's there's three, um, and they could. Someone could start another one tomorrow, if they wanted, with whatever boundaries they, they identified. But I think by having boundaries where the neighbors do have a tremendous amount in common, that gives incentive for, for members to join, because you're, you're tackling the same issues and same problems together as a group. Yeah.
16: Thank you. For,
2: for a while, you know, um, as one example, uh, Meadowview had a couple of
7: groups claiming the same uh, uh, same boundaries but one group focused more on development issues uh, whereas the the other group was was more broader in, in looking at, at neighborhood issues um, um, but I, I would like to um, uh, as I mentioned earlier the uh, as, a, as a resource um, uh, our website does have um, neighborhood groups and uh, contact folks and also the um, the boundaries in which they define um uh, their group, so that that's uh, a resource tool that that's available uh, to to the public.
17: member
0: Bill <laughs> he'll come to me in a minute Momans
8: hi, hi. I, d- I just want to make a couple real points following up on uh, what Cyril said. Tahoe Park is a great example of, of an area where uh, right off the avenues of Stockton Boulevard, we have an area that's referred to as West Tahoe Park, which is actually in District 5, though the Tahoe Park Neighborhood Association clearly, just for continuity's sake, embodies that area. And a second thing that I, point that I want to make particularly to address what Roman was referring to, I think it's important to, and I'm not in any way criticizing the city for this, but just to sort of point out what I think you guys are trying to get to, which is they don't really make an effort to verify whether any of these groups are viable or not. If you really want to know whether a neighborhood is a viable group, you almost have to go to their meetings to see how many people are showing what degree of interest is there, because I know that you can just say, I represent so-and-so, I'm this group, and you guys, in an effort to embrace everyone and just say, okay, that's fine, and they'll be on the site. It's, it's, Like I said, that's no criticism, but that there's really no way to deter- verify who's who doing it that way without going to the meetings. Yeah.
7: We, we do you. make efforts to, you know, visit neighborhood groups, and some request our assistance in terms of helping them form, um, you know, with technology. Um, a, a lot of groups uh, have evolved and changed, uh, whereas before, you know, it would be common to meet at a school or someone's living room, uh, but with a lot of the technology, some folks are comfortable just suing a phone tree or communicating through email. Uh, so we also have to be sensitive to those kinds of, of things as, as well. Um, but we, we do our best efforts to, um, you know, make sure a group
4: is, is active uh, and, and engaged. Member Hanson. I I don't know if this should go to Derek or to Scott, but um, the current city council map does divide some neighborhoods. Tahoe Park is a great example, um, Valley High. In 2001, um, how was that handled? Um, Was there discussion about um, dividing those neighborhoods? For instance, Alkali Flat, where I live, and Mansion Flats are technically two separate neighborhoods on the map. We have a common neighborhood association now, Alkali Flats, Mansion Flats Neighborhood Association. So um, obviously there's some nuance here, but could you talk a little bit about 2001 and how some of these challenges were addressed? Um?
3: I'll take a first shot at that, and uh, others may want to uh, chime in as well. But obviously that was one of the, uh, the, the, the testimony that we got had to do with splitting up neighborhoods. And that obviously had some negative consequences from that one criteria. What the council had to do was weigh the seven or so criteria, chief among which was the population, the the equal population. So sometimes you're aware that you have to split a neighborhood, and it's somewhat unavoidable. So it is a consideration, and every effort should be made to keep the neighborhoods whole, but it's not always possible to do that when paired with the other criteria.
0: Okay. Item four.
1: Okay. Item four, then, is the communities of interest as a redistricting criterion.
18: Good evening. I'm Ellen Marshall with the Community Development Department, and this evening I'll be providing an overview of community of interests. The Charter states that consideration shall be given to these seven factors when redistricting. The Charter doesn't spell out the hierarchy or relative weight to apply to each of these factors. At the April 25th SRCAC meeting, item six, we presented primer number one, which included working definitions for each of the redistricting criteria. Tonight, we will provide additional detail on communities of interest. Communities of, oops, sorry. Communities of interest can be identified by referring to the census, demographic studies, surveys, or testimony of community activists and civic leaders. Populations or communities that have common needs and interests reflected in patterns of geography, social interaction, trade, political ties, and common interests should not be divided. The last definition on this page is from Wilson VU Special Masters and it says the social and economic interests common to the population of an area which are probable subjects of legislative action. Located in District 6, Little Saigon was recognized by the City Council in 2010 as a distinct cultural and commercial district. The Stockton Boulevard corridor from Riza Avenue to Fruit Ridge Road has a significant concentration of Vietnamese-owned, small-run, family-run small businesses. This recognition was adopted by Council Resolution 2010-051. Based on these facts, Little Saigon could be considered a community of interest. For some minority communi- communities, the community of interest approach is a mainstay of their redistricting efforts. An ethnic community which may not be large enough in population to constitute a majority-minority district could still be considered a community of interest. Characterization as a community of interest helps in advocating for districts that promote responsive representation by elected officials and protection against the fracturing of their communities. Communities of interest are dependent on anecdotal information which differs from other redistricting criteria that are definable and measurable. Testimony from civic leaders is used instead of quantifiable socioeconomic data. Communities of interest tend to fall into the three categories, political, geographic, socioeconomic, and cultural. The primer compiled specific examples from various sources listed in no particular order of significance. The list in the primer does not purport to be all inclusive and may inadvertently omit some very valid communities of interest. Is it best to keep communities of interest whole so that each community of interest can have a chance to have its own legislator looking out for its interest and being particularly responsible? to serve the community. Others believe that it is best to split communities of interest so that districts are more heterogeneous and each legislator must compromise to suit his or her constituents. There are also instances when a sizable community may want to split into two or more districts in order to extend its influence. Each response incorporates a different idea about what representative districts mean to accomplish. It is critically important to solicit from the communities of interest how they believe their interests will be best served. The city has received two letters pertaining to communities of interest which I believe you received this evening. The first letter was from the River District requesting to be included in a united central city and the second letter is from the East Sacramento Chamber of Commerce requesting to preserve East Sacramento in one council district. This concludes my presentation, and I'm available
0: for questions. And we do have several speakers, correct? We do. Okay. You, you want to, before the speakers, member hands. Uh,
4: one of the, I just wanted to clarify one of the statements you made. You said that communities of interest don't use data, but rather use anecdotal data. Is that? You, you made a statement. I'm just. Yes.
3: I think what we're trying to get at is, in comparison to some of the other criteria, which are very measurable. This communities of interest can use quantifiable data, but they equally may rely on anecdotal evidence.
0: I I, I do have a clarifying question, and, and maybe uh, um, Matt can help me with this. Do I understand incorrectly that population is the number one criteria and that the other seven are of equal value but less important than population? And did I get a different understanding of that just a second ago? No. The answer to your question is equal population is the
19: standard – is the gold standard. That's what I thought. Okay. And it's the primary consideration. And the other
0: considerations fall. Below that, in no particular order. That's what I thought. If I misunderstood your presentation, I apologize. I I thought I understood you to say something different.
1: Okay, we have four people signed up to speak. The first is Mario Guerrero, I believe. Thank you. And then Greta Lassen and Wendy Hoyt.
17: Good evening. My name is Mario Guerrero. I am a gay resident of Midtown, downtown. I'm also the Government Affairs Director for Equality California and a registered lobbyist for Equality California. Uh, EQCA works to achieve equality and secure legal protections for LGBT people. Um, The redistricting process here includes, um, uh, we believe, uh, should include the consideration um, of keeping intact communities of interest. Um, as per the presentation, um, contiguous uh, populations that share common social and economic interests, um, we have 16,953 members within the city limits. And we will be submitting a letter um, referencing this, num- um, this number. Um, I'd also like to point out, uh, and this may have been mentioned, but the California um, Supreme Court has recognized that LGBT individuals form a specific minority group um, and as a minority, uh, the LGBT community in Sacramento has formed a distinct geographically compact group. And hopefully the maps that we submit um, later this week will uh, show that. Therefore, uh, EQCA, uh, we urge uh, this uh, advisory committee um, to use a communities of interest standard and ensure that uh, the fair representation of, of lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender people um, in Sacramento as I mentioned, we will um, provide uh, relevant informative maps later this week. And also, I would like to submit um, the letter I mentioned. And I'd like to thank you for your time. And who might I give this letter to? Thank you very much.
16: Greta. I'm Greta LeChin. I'm the, on the board of the River District. Um, We are a longtime redevelopment area. We formed in 1990 and we have worked together as a cohesive group uh, toward our goals of redevelopment. Um, uh, Our our boundaries are the American River on the north, the Sacramento River, down to the rail yards, which until recently was actually included as part of our uh, redevelopment area, and Blue Diamond and over to Sutter's Landing. And uh, we submitted a letter to Mr. Cherry asking that uh, we be included in a central city redevelopment area, or central city district, rather, um, we share the same goals. We've worked together over the years on similar problems and look for solutions together.
0: Thank you. i received that letter and read it. Um, you said until recently you were included in the rail yard. What, what happened recently? that changed change
16: that? Uh, four years ago, um, the rail yards became a very complicated, um, difficult problem, and um, they split off into their own redevelopment plan. So until recently they were part of us and then they just became uh, too large and their their problems differed from ours.
0: And so your request just so I'm clear is not to be a district by itself but to be included in one contiguous exactly. district. Exactly. Thank you.
16: And uh, and I would like to point out that over the years as we have sought solutions to many of the problems that we were dealing with, we went to um fellow groups downtown, like the Downtown Partnership, to work out some of those issues, uh, because we have common interests. Thank you. Thank you. Wendy Hoyt.
15: Good evening, Mr. Chair members of the committee. My name is Wendy Hoyt. I'm here on behalf of the Downtown Sacramento Partnership. I'm uh, on the board and I'm chairing the uh, redistricting task force. As one volunteer to another, I just want to thank you at the onset for all the time that you are committing to this process. You're playing a very critical role for our community and we're grateful to you. Um, The partnership views the redistricting that's happening now to be very, very important. In fact, it's our highest priority as an organization. We started as an organization looking at this back in December of 2010. Uh, Along the way, we acquired some professional guidance, and more recently we've um, reached out to a number of others. It's a pleasure to hear some people already testified, tonight. I know you have some letters in support of what I'm going to recommend today. Um, We're calling this the Downtown Partnership Task Force only because that's where it started, but we're broadening the representation on the task force, minimizing the partnership, and expanding it to include other organizations. Uh, From the onset, we believe that it was important to take the principles uh, that are important to the central city and really focus on them, and with all due respect to the amazing electeds we have in office today, put the personalities aside. If you look back ten years ago, six of the nine went out in office. Who knows who will choose to run or not run in 2012 or 14? And I think it's safe to say in 2020 we'll have some different faces. So we've tried to put the personalities aside, focus on the principles. What we're asking for is for the central city to be recognized in the redistricting effort. The central city is defined by uh, the city's general plan and many other organizations and entities is the two natural boundaries of the rivers of the American River and the Sacramento River and the two freeways, Highway 50 and Interstate 80. Within that area, there are 32,000 residents, 75,000 employees. It's the hub of our regional economy, of our tourism, of our cultural resources, and some of the finest neighborhoods in the, in the city that need to be protected and preserved. Right now they are splintered into three different council districts. We urge you to reunite these uh, splintered organizations into one comprehensive council district because they are truly areas of uh, communities of common interest in terms of urban policy, quality of life, um, social service issues, parks, the transportation network. We share a lot of interests. We'd like to have one united voice as we move forward and have a single district. Beyond that, we remain flexible, because we don't want to say what the whole district should look like and then have uh, have that impact the whole city. But we would respectfully ask that any alternative that you look at – or in every alternative that you look at – include the central city, 32,000 residents, as a united core voice, and reunite the neighborhoods of common interest. Thank you. Thanks, Wendy. And my letter as uh, the letter from the partnership is double-sided, just to make sure you see the whole thing. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Saving that paper. Green. Go green.
1: Okay, Rosanna Herber followed by David Deleuze and then Dr. James Reed.
20: Good evening, Chair Cherry and members of the Commission. My name is Rosanna Herber and I'm here tonight on behalf of the Rainbow Chamber of Commerce. The Rainbow Chamber of Commerce formed a redistricting subcommittee to provide input into this process. And so I'm here to um, speak to, to their issues. But first and foremost, uh, I want to say thank you, because I know how hard it is to be up there on the dais and uh, balance everybody's needs from different areas. And uh, I, uh, I look forward to seeing how this process unfolds, because I know it's going to be a fun one for all of you. <laughs> The Rainbow Chamber of Commerce represents uh, gay and lesbian, bisexual and transgender businesses throughout uh, the Sacramento County area. Uh, we are interested, as some of the speakers have said, in the central city. And that is because we believe there is strong data that we'll present to you next week that shows we have a high concentration of LGBT Uh, people and their supporters that live in the central core, specifically the midtown and the downtown neighborhoods. We would like to see the central city united into one council district. We're not going to draw council districts for you all because we feel that that is a process that is better left up to others who can balance the other needs of different communities. However, we believe that our community should be in one district. Right now, as Wendy Hoyt pointed out, the central city has been represented by three council members. They're all wonderful people, but um, they, too, someday will go on to um higher office and the LGBT community believes that our electoral power is um split by not having the central city united. Uh, the data again that we'll present to you next week will show just a high concentration of our community of interest in the central city. So We're asking for two things tonight. One is that the Commission recognizes the LGBT community as a community of interest. Uh, That should be very easy to do based upon the information that was presented by staff. And then secondly, we ask that you... Um, reunite the central city into one council district so that the LGBT community of interest will have a voice in future uh, electoral uh, processes. And um, I do have a letter that Thank you. I need, you to, to, I need you
0: to wrap up. Thanks.
1: David?
21: GOOD AFTERNOON, MR. CHAIRMAN AND uh, MEMBERS OF THE COMMISSION. MY NAME IS DAVID Deluz, AND I'M PRESIDENT AND CEO OF THE GREATER SACRAMENTO URBAN LEAGUE, AND I'M ALSO WORKING ON THE REDISTRICTING COMMITTEE FOR THE AFRICAN-AMERICAN LEADERSHIP COALITION. Uh, IN 2001, I SERVED AS THE CO-CHAIR OF THE AFRICAN-AMERICAN REDISTRICTING PROJECT. Uh, which uh, spearheaded and worked with uh, various other groups in the process the last time around. I think we did a great job, and it's our intent with the AALC to continue in that process and continue in that vein to work together with other like-minded groups uh, to ensure that we uh, encourage and create an opportunity for everyone to have the opportunity to elect a representative of their choice. My comments tonight will be brief. And simply I just want to focus on a couple of things. One is there are several communities of interest uh, for African Americans in Sacramento, and they include North and South Natomas, Del Paso Heights, Oak Park, Meadowview, and the Glen Elder Lemon Hill communities. And we realize that several of these communities will uh, no doubt uh, be subject to some separation, for instance, North and South Natomas. We almost – almost everyone knows is going to have to be split up somehow. So we recognize that that's going to be a challenge. But uh, we really want to see Del Paso Heights, Oak Park, and Meadowview because those are the core communities that may be subject to some uh, level of cracking uh, in this process. We would like to see – or splitting, cracking or splitting. We uh, are going to uh, advocate very strongly that uh, though, particularly those three communities be uh, maintained. We fought for it in uh, 1991 to make sure MetaView wasn't split. We are very vigilant to make sure that we maintain our communities of interest where we can and work with other groups in partnership to ensure everyone has the right to elect a representative of their choice. Thank you for your time.
0: Thank you, David.
1: Dr. Reed?
22: Good evening, Chairman Cherry and members of the committee. My name is Dr. James Reed and I was chairman of the 1991 and co-chairman of the 19, I mean of the 2001 redistricting committees of the African American community. We reunited Meadowview in 1991. It had been illegally split in 1981. To say that I literally drew the map that reunited Meadowview is to tell the truth. We repeated our successes in working with the various communities of interest throughout the city, the Latino community, the Asian Pacific Islander community, and the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender communities. We have an interest in preserving those districts in which we can elect a person of our choosing, Meadowview, north and south of Natomas, Del Paso Heights, Oak Park, the Glen Elder and the Lemon Hill communities, as uh, Mr. Deleuze just explained. One of the things that we look forward to are submitting maps that are balanced within plus or minus one percentage point. Uh, We have prepared maps, and we will be submitting maps next Monday that are balanced, that also maintain the integrity of the central city and maintain the integrity of ESAC and the other communities. While there may be a need to change council persons, they will be under one versus three. We have attempted to take into account the integrity of communities, and the integrity of communities of interest. Thank you for your time, and have a pleasant evening.
0: Thank thank you, James. That's our last speaker on Item 4. Yes, Madam Clerk, Item 5.
1: Okay. The next item is 5. It's the Overview of the Voting Rights Act.
19: Good evening, Chair and members of the committee. Matt React with the city attorney's office. And um, <clears throat> I was, uh, during the past week since our last meeting, uh, we decided that we would front load a little bit of information that was originally scheduled for later in your um, education um, uh, sessions. And that is to give you an overview of the Federal Voting Rights Act as applied to redistricting. And so what I intend to do today is to give you an overview of some of the concepts of the Voting Rights Act, but not get into specific details in its application and some of the more nuanced issues related to race and ethnicity, because I think next week when we have our speaker, we're going to have a much more um, informative and... Uh, I think a better presentation of the specific application of the Voting Rights Act. But in preparation of that, I thought it would be helpful for the committee to get an idea of what the issues are involved and some of the terminology and concepts that we'll be discussing in greater detail as we go along, not only next week when we have our speaker, but also as the uh, issues are presented by members of the public and maps are reviewed once maps are received. So with that... (coughs) Here's just a little overview. I'm going to talk about uh, the constitutional issues. Um, Generally, I'll get into the general concepts of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the concept of racial gerrymandering because it comes up often when we're talking about redistricting as well as the Voting Rights Act, and then just for um, posterity's sake and some locations of some sources and references that we can all look to in the future for finding more information. So let's take a look at some constitutional considerations. First off, <clears throat> the U.S. Constitution, actually, I've, I'm going to go through a couple of slides here with uh, several provisions of the Constitution, has numerous provisions regarding voting, election, etc. cetera. Um, you can look at the uh, processes for voting for, the obviously, the president, the vice president, senators, House uh, representatives, etc. What I'm focused on here, though, is specific rights in the Constitution with respect to voting. Now, the 14th Amendment, uh, uh, which was a uh, Reconstruction-era constitutional amendment passed in 1868, contains what is commonly referred to as, as the Equal Protection Clause. And you can see that it's the very bottom of the quote there. It's, um, no person shall be denied uh, the equal protection of the laws. That is applied to many things across uh, society and many um, injustices across society. Specifically, it's applied with respect to voting when um, racial or ethnic groups are the subjects of invidious discrimination. More particularly that's applicable to our discussion tonight is the 15th Amendment, um, also a Reconstruction-era amendment passed in, uh, ratified in 1870. And specifically, that provides that the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Now, of course, it says United States or any state, but that would also include local jurisdictions as well. Not directly germane to our discussion about the Voting Rights Act that will come up next, but I just thought it was interesting to point out there are three additional uh, specific amendments to the Constitution that deal with individual writing, uh, voting rights. The 19th Amendment, of course, um, after the uh, suffragette movement in ratified in 1920, providing the right, of, uh, the right to vote um, irregardless of your sex. The 24th Amendment, which abolished poll taxes, which were a method to effectively uh, uh, discriminate against minority groups. And the 26th Amendment, which was passed during the Vietnam War era when um, a person's 18 years of age or older were granted the right to vote. Specifically, I'm going to talk about two general concepts here. One, um, it goes without saying, hopefully that everyone here knows that the U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the land. And the phrase I have uh, pulled from Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution is known as the Supremacy Clause. Generally, that provides that any, the Constitution of the United States and any federal law enacted by Congress subject to the, I'm sorry, under the power of the Constitution takes precedence and preempts state or local laws that run contrary to that provision. Specifically, in Amendment 15 and the 15th Amendment, which I previously cited, there's a very specific provision, Section 2, that provides that the right, as stated in the 15th Amendment, um, can be enforced through the power of Congress enacting appropriate legislation. And that is where we get to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. After the uh, 15th Amendment was ratified, just a little pre-Voting Rights Act history here, Congress indeed attempted to uh, effectuate the protection of um, the uh, previously enslaved um, uh, uh, African-Americans who were subject to um, all the invidious discrimination up to and through the Civil War and enacted the Enforcement Act of 1870, which uh, actually had criminal penalties for obstructing the right to vote. But as uh, anyone who will recall American history, the Reconstruction and post-Reconstruction era was anything but a uh, peaceful coming together of um, the North and the South. And the lapse of time and the lapse of interest to some of the persons who were around during the Civil War led to spotty enforcement of the Enforcement Act. And, in fact, uh, Congress repealed most of the provisions in 1894. About that same time, I guess as a, as a convergence of conditions, um, the southern states, beginning with Mississippi and, and most of the other su- southern states, um, uh, enacted what uh, history calls Jim Crow laws and uh, effectively disenfranchised African American voters through poll taxes, uh, literacy tests, um, residency requirements, etc. cetera. Um, <clears throat> to prove that this was an invidious discrimination, What happened was there was a lot of poor uh, white residents who were also discriminated against because of this, based on literacy and comprehension. But these states enacted uh, various schemes to exempt um, the white voters from these prohibitions while still subjecting um, African Americans to those those tests. So obviously that led to inequality up and through the 1950s and 1960s when the Civil Rights Movement started to uh, gain serious momentum in the United States. And in fact, Congress did enact um, some statutes in the 50s and 60s, which uh, uh, afforded the right of persons to, I'm sorry, which allowed the Department of Justice to bring lawsuits um, against, uh, to enforce, uh, uh, um, to prohibit discrimination or to uh, um, stop discrimination. However, the southern states were... um, ingenious in their ways of getting around these prohibitions by amending their constitutions and adopting statutes which effectively got around those uh, federal prohibitions and the court decisions which tried to impose restrictions upon them, and the discrimination continued. So uh, fast forward to the 1960s and the Civil Rights Movement, and then the uh, tragedy in Selma, um, Alabama, Um, in which uh, several persons were killed uh, by uh, officers when they were engaged in a march to Montgomery, it led to some serious action and serious debate at the federal level. And JFK was very interested in moving towards a civil rights uh, 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 bill while he was president. Um, Obviously, he was not around when uh, ultimately it was signed in 1965, but LBJ made it a, um, a high priority to get a civil rights act Uh, signed uh, with all due expediency. It was uh, actually not passed uh, unanimously. There was quite an extensive debate over it. But as you can see on the top quote from my screen, on the screen, it says at the very top, it's an act to enforce the 15th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States and for other purposes. So this is the direct attempt by Congress to enforce the 15th Amendment of the Constitution. It's been amended four times in 1970, 1975, 1982, and 2006. I've only put uh, the 1982 amendments uh, listed for you because I believe that is what is most relevant to our discussion. And that is prior to 1982. And by a Supreme Court decision in 1980, the Court had said that there must be an intent to discriminate to be a violation of the Voting Rights Act. In 1982, Congress addressed that oversight, if you will, and uh, changed the language of the Voting Rights Act to provide that it's essentially the intent or effect of discrimination which allows for uh, um, a suit for violation of the Civil Rights Act. So just to change things up a bit, I found a copy of the first page and the last page, and you see LBJ's signature on the bottom. of that document. That's the actual uh, Act of 18, I'm sorry, the Civil Rights Act of uh, 1965. I'm sorry, Voting Rights Act of 1965. And there's Hubert Humphrey's signature, there you go. So, what does the Voting Rights Act have to do with redistricting? Well, there's two main sections of the Voting Rights Act that deal with redistricting. One is known as Section 5. And Section 5 jurisdictions are those jurisdictions which are specifically identified by the U.S. Department of Justice, and they have to get approval before they change any of their uh, district lines. Uh, Some states are fully covered. Those are mostly the southern states. Some are partially covered. In California, only four counties are covered or partially covered, and that's Kings, Merced, Monterey, and Yuba counties. Sacramento is not covered by Section Five, and therefore we do not have to worry about getting pre-clearance from the federal government before uh, the city council changes uh, the district boundaries. That is not true, as you will note, for, for example, the uh, redistricting commission at the state level, because there are jurisdictions within California that are covered. The entire state redistricting process has to go through the approval process at the U.S. DOJ uh, before it can be finally implemented. The big one that's going to be applicable to the city of Sacramento is section two of the Voting Rights Act. And as you can see, it forbids any standard practice or procedure imposed in a manner which results in a denial or abridgment of the right to vote of the United States to vote, uh, sorry, of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race or color or in contravention to the guarantees uh, that are placed elsewhere in the act for language minorities. As you can see, what I've done there is I've quoted in a manner which results in, as I indicated before, the 1982 amendments changed this language in 1973 sub A to allow for suits brought either on intentional discrimination or redistricting that uh, results in the effect of discrimination. And in fact, um, nowadays, that's most of the cases that are brought because it's – Let's face it, people got smart and, and, and don't put intentional discrimination on the record as, as they used to in the old days. But it still happens. Um, the challenges under Section 2, as I note on that last bullet point, are usually that a, a districting scheme dilutes minority voting strength. That's what the usual term we hear, vote dilution, minority voting strength dilution. That minority strength Uh, Voting strength dilution can amount to discrimination. I've had a very long quote here, and uh, once this is printed and available on the web, you can read it, uh, uh, the whole thing. But the point here is you'll see uh, the very top two lines. A violation of subsection A is established if, based on the totality of circumstances, Essentially, that someone was deprived full participation in the political process, and that's where we get to what's known as the jingles requirements
0: jingles Matt, yes Matt, excuse me mas I, I apologize for interrupting, but i i won't remember my question or it won't be relevant when you get there if i don't ask you now, and maybe you maybe you've given it to us already. is there a definition of dilution
19: dilution is. Okay, uh, that's a easy and yet potentially lengthy, uh, requires a potentially lengthy response. Dilution means what you think it means. It means you go from a, a um, strength to less strength in the common sense definition of the term. What amounts to dilution is a more fact-intense analysis that, that requires a, a review of the initial voting strength of minority group and the ending resulting strength. so something might be dilution depending on the facts but essentially it's the common sense definition of vote dilution. For purposes of our discussion we can just say uh, the dictionary term of dilution means it is applicable to the, uh, the, the discussion we're having. whether or not something amounts to a dilution it's dependent upon the facts of any particular case. Okay so, Let's look at what a a Section 2 violation is. If you violate Section 2 of the Federal Voting Rights Act, you're in trouble, okay? And your lines will be thrown out, and you'll have to start all over again. So you try not to violate Section 2 of the, uh, the Voting Rights Act. In 1986, the Supreme Court issued a decision called Thornburg v. Jingles, and these are the three concepts as set forth in Thornburg v. Jingles are still used, and they are known as the Jingle Requirements or the Jingles Factors. You need to establish these three conditions to establish a Section 2 violation. First, you have to show that the minority group is sufficiently large and geographically compact to constitute a majority in a single district. In other words, there needs to be a potential for a majority-minority district. Two, The minority group has to be politically cohesive, and that will generally be shown by voting patterns. Three, you have to show uh, essentially white-block voting, um, that the majority votes sufficiently as a block to enable it usually to defeat the minority group's preferred candidate. So you have a very large and compact minority group. They are generally politically cohesive, and they generally vote the same way and they have to have been uh, basically shut out by a white voting bloc, which is defeating their preferred candidates. However, that's not enough. As I mentioned before, the quote I had from the second quote from um, Section 2 of uh, the Voting Rights Act uses a term called totality of circumstances, Once you establish the three jingles factors, you also have to establish that the totality of circumstances substantiates the minority group possesses less relative opportunity to elect candidates of its choice. And that's the LULAC decision, the League of United Latin American Citizens, which uh, was decided in 2006. So if I refer to another case down the road, as LULAC, that's this case involving a redistricting plan in Texas uh, under which um, the, there was a, a large Hispanic voting uh, group that, was, that the Texas legislature try, tried to split into two districts. And the court found, in fact, in that case there was uh, discrimination and a violation of uh, Section 2. So what is the totality of circumstances? The Supreme Court has identified several. And these are essentially taken from the legislative history of the 1982 amendments. Has there been uh, institutionalized discrimination? Um, What's the extent of racially polarized voting? Uh, What's the extent to which members of the minority group have been elected to office? And what's known as uh, proportionality um, is what is the proportion of elected offices held by members of the minority group compared to its share of the population? And I want to make very clear here that while we look, when a court looks at the totality of circumstances, it is a very fact intensive discussion because it, as you can see here, it would be dependent upon each jurisdiction's history, the voting uh, patterns in that particular jurisdiction over time, have in that jurisdiction, has a minority group had someone elected to office repeatedly once, never. Um, and what is the effective percentage of that group within the total population in order to determine whether or not, all things being equal, you would expect them to have representation on an elected body. So you can see it's very fact-intensive. Also, uh, to be clear, what, what, the, uh, um, what I mentioned before in my that long citation from the Voting Rights Act is that while the standards, procedures, and practices need to be fair, members of a minority group are not do not have a right to proportional representation. In other words, if there's 20% of one minority group, 20% of another minority group in a jurisdiction, they don't automatically get one-fifth uh, representation on any board, committee, commission, whatever the case may be. The right is to have access to the election and uh, and the voting system, and to provide the ability to elect someone of your choice, not an automatic right to proportional representation. So next week we're going to talk about some things, and I have already mentioned some definitions, and this is to just get everyone here up to speed. What is a majority-minority district? Well, it's like it sounds. The minority group composes a numerical working majority of the voting age population. In some circumstances, uh, the Voting Rights Act can require creation of majority-minority districts. There's what's known as influence districts. These are where a minority group can influence the outcome because of their numbers, um, even if it can't get its preferred candidate effectively elected because of the percentage of the population. And the Voting Rights Act does not require the creation of influence districts. Between those two districts are what are known as crossover districts. And that's where the minority voters make up less than a majority of the district. But uh, they bring along with them, at least potentially, their their population is large enough that if they get support from the majority group for the minority group's preferred candidate, they can effectively uh, elect the minorities preferred candidate. These are sometimes referred to as coalitional districts. And the reason I put nay coalitional districts is because um, although some of the some of the literature and some cases still use the term coalitional districts, I would prefer that we don't use that term because the Supreme Court has preferred not to use that term because it could be confused with our next definition which is a coalition district claim. And that's where two minority groups together could combine to elect a candidate of those two minority groups' um, uh, mutual preferred candidate. So going back, crossover districts, the Voting Rights Act does not require the creation of crossover districts. So these are some of the terms. Here's a couple more definitions we've heard and will be hearing. Packing and cracking. The Voting Rights Act uh, uh, essentially prohibits packing and cracking, and that is usually how people challenge redistricting plans because they see it as a packing or cracking scheme. What is packing? Packing is when you place a a significant concentration of a minority group in one district So you allow them in that district to vote the preferred candidate, but you effectively reduce its strength in other districts so they would not have the ability to have an elected officer of their choice from that other district. On the other side, you have cracking, which is where you split minority group into multiple districts so it can't have an effective majority or it loses its voting power in any one district. And we're going – I don't want to steal Scott's thunder, because he has, he has uh, some, some graphics, I think, for next week. But I put together some very um, rudimentary graphics to explain packing and cracking here. Here's cracking. Okay, first you start off with four persons, and they're in one district. And they could be a cohesive voting block. And what I, hopefully you can see those lines between the four dots in, on the right-hand side of the screen – where you now split each of those persons, let's say they're in a minority group, into four different districts. And instead of being a cohesive voting block, their their voting strength has now been diluted by putting them in four different districts. Conversely, there's packing. On the right, I'm sorry, on the left, you will see that there are, uh, and in this case, uh, I'm using green for the minority group, and blue would be, say, a white-block uh, voting uh, group. On the left-hand side of the screen, you'll see that um, the minority would have the ability potentially to elect its preferred candidate because they have a four-to-three margin in that one district. And then the other district, they have two. So what do you, how, do you, how do you pack? Well, you pack and they would also be potentially, uh, we don't know, but potentially a majority in that other smaller district. Now, if you look on the right-hand side of the screen, you draw the lines so that now that district that that has the four uh, white individuals now vastly overwhelms the minority group, and therefore the minority group doesn't have much of a chance of voting in that district, although they have been... um, put together another district in which they could uh, elect the candidate of their choice. That's called packing, and that's also a potential violation of the Voting Rights Act. So they're just general terms. We're going to talk more about that later. Okay, racial gerrymandering. Here's what I want to say about racial gerrymandering. It's not really part of the Voting Rights Act, but I wanted to get it out there because it always comes up. This is typically brought as a claim under the 14th Amendment, which I referred to earlier, as an equal protection claim, not a Voting Rights Act claim. And racial gerrymandering used to be done in order to uh, dilute minority votes. Now it's actually uh, a lot of um, jurisdictions have tried to do it the other way, by racial gerrymandering uh, minority groups into a particular district in essentially a packing scheme in order to keep uh, the minority group in one district and prevent them from having um, significant voting strength in other districts. And uh, quite simply, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court applies a strict scrutiny standard to strike down plans um, if race is a sole primary or predominant factor in redistricting. And I think we talked about that earlier in uh, the first week. So I just want to get out there. For VRA purposes, we're not going to really worry about racial g- gerrymandering. Although the two of, are the kind of two sides of the same coin, gerrymandering claims are generally brought as equal protection claims under the Fourteenth Amendment. Here's an example I pulled for a, what a racial gerrymander, just to kind of break up the monotony of words on the screen. This was from uh, North Carolina's. You know. Um, long and tortured history with attempting to draw districts, and this was back in the 90s. You can see the gerrymandered district is that district in red, which essentially is a highway corridor. It's an interstate corridor um, running through predominantly African-American communities. And it was the attempt of the uh, North Carolina legislature to draw that community in order to afford African-American representation um, but because race was a predominant factor in that case, the court found that was a racial gerrymander. So that's just an example of how that would look. So I just want to give a really briefly sources and references, where we're, where we're at. Okay, we start with the United States Constitution, as I said. Start at the top. That's where it all comes from. The 42 U.S.C. Section 1973, Three at sec is the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It was enacted by Congress to um, enforce the Fifteenth Amendment, and and to some degree the Fourteenth. I'm sorry, the Fifteenth Amendment, and to some degree the Fourteenth Amendment also. There have been numerous, numerous, numerous Supreme Court decisions and lower court decisions interpreting the Voting Rights Act, and it is the substance of continued litigation today. And I will say, as a general principle. Uh, things have only got less clear over the past five or six years with some of the application because the court has become splintered in the way it interprets the application of the Voting Rights Act and has left a lot of questions unanswered um, about what what are the thresholds that are required. There is even some concern among some court members whether certain provisions of the Voting Rights Act are still constitutional, although they have refused to address that issue directly. Having said that, um, we live in a litigious society, and so there's a lot of uh, uh, cases coming out on a regular basis interpreting the Voting Rights Act. I see I have a typo in my next um, insert. It's January 8, 2011, and that was an uh, open memo I prepared to counsel when we started this process. Uh, you can refer to generally for legal principles, um, including the Equal Protection, Racial Gerrymanding, and the Voting Rights Act. And for those of you who want to learn more about the history of the Voting Rights Act as well as how it's applied, what jurisdictions are subject to certain requirements, guides for implementation, and whatnot, the uh, Voting Rights Act is enforced by the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division Voting Section, and you can go to that website or just go to the DOJ's website, and it's pretty easy to figure out. So that is the very high-level overview of the Voting Rights Act. Its application to your task and the council's task will need to play out against the context of the maps that we receive and the data as as the individual maps. We we look at the data in the individual maps. And we can certainly address individual questions as they come along as to whether or not something might or might not be uh, a packing or cracking uh, scheme. But uh, until then, I think this is just want to give you a big overview, talk about some of the terminology, get some history behind it, and then we'll talk about specifics as we move along.
4: And that's it.
0: I think I have some questions. Member Hanson.
4: Uh, First, uh, Matt, thank you very much for a very thorough presentation, especially your memo, which is several hundred years old now. Um, from 201, (laughs) um, which was very insightful for us.
19: I had just gone out of law school, so that's a... (laughs) a
4: Might I compliment you on your genetics? Um, I guess I have a couple questions. One is um, we don't have information yet for us to determine whether there's a sufficiently concentrated uh, population here that might constitute a majority-minority district. And so, if we we find that some of the communities that have spoken to us tonight, particularly the African American community in those neighborhoods that um, both Daryl and David mentioned, um, are not sufficient to constitute a majority minority district, or maybe if the Latino or API community came to us, how would we address that? Given that the Voting Rights Act may or may not cover them, um, I guess is my first question, and then um, I'll just lump it together. The second question is. It was raised in the letter from Rosanna Herber that now, under the states equal protection clause, uh, sexual orientation is um, applied is recognized on the same footing essentially as some of the other protected classes. So strict scrutiny would apply. How would we, as a committee, um, have to take care uh, with them or any other community that uh, strict scrutiny might apply to? Hey, let me let me work backwards a little yep. bit. One. Um,
19: After the Prop 8 cases um, and the ones that are still working through the court, Prop 8 was the result and was in direct reaction to the Supreme Court, California Supreme Court's decision, which said that it was effectively unconstitutional under the state constitution to deprive um, same-sex individuals to marry um, in that heterosexual couples could marry and same-sex couples could not and such was a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the State Constitution. Prop 8 came along and essentially undid that decision in the sense that it amended the Constitution to um, override that decision with respect to that uh, determination. However, there is that case, uh, the case still stands for the proposition that, um homosexual individuals are a suspect class for purposes of evaluating equal protection claims. So that is still valid. So we have a potential state law equal protection issue in California that we wouldn't have in, in the federal realm. Okay? The federal cases have not yet uh, played out far enough to make a determination as to where the Supreme Court is going to come out on that issue. But we're getting a little far down the road. That is a state law issue that we need to de- we could potentially need to deal with. It is not, however, a Voting Rights Act issue. Um, the Voting Rights Act deals with race, specifically, by its terms, race, color, and in some instances, language minorities. So, at least for purposes of that. We don't have to worry about a Voting Rights Act issue with the um, LGBT community or any particular subset thereof. When we're looking at the issue, so at at best, it's not, I want to say at best because it's quite the thing that people use. It's a 14th, it's not even a 14th Amendment claim because it's a potential 14th Amendment claim because it has not yet played out in, in federal court. It is a more viable State law constitutional claim, violation of the state law, uh, state constitutional protection against um, unfair application of the laws, the equal protection clause of the state constitution. But we don't know how that's going to apply yet. Quite frankly, we don't know how that's going to apply yet because I don't think we have enough court guidance to determine how that's going to be applied. Having said that, as a practical matter in redistricting, it would be very difficult to determine unlike with the racial and ethnic groups that are identified in the census data, it would be a much more difficult issue to grapple with when we are not using official data that's easily manipulable um, in order to determine whether or not there was a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. So I think we're – I don't know how we're going to handle that as we move forward. I don't think we have clear guidance on how to do that. Um but of course, having said that, even if you have a protected class, simply drawing a line is not, and and splitting up a group, is not necessarily a violation of the equal protection clause under the state constitution. So, it's it would be premature to say that looking at the LGBT community, and let's assume for the sake of argument that we we buy what uh, was. Uh, was told here tonight and that instead of keeping downtown cohesive we split up downtown into three groups could there be an equal protection claim for um, in by a member of the LGBT community that that was a violation of the state equal Protection Clause the answer is I don't know but it seems highly unlikely because of the method by which that person would need to prove the discrimination so but uh, obviously we are we are in the uh, early days of that litigation um, context, and how that's going to apply over time. So I really can't give a fair prediction of that, other than to say that uh, we're we would be treading new ground and coming in making those considerations here in this process. So let's go back. Let's. So your first question was,
4: what do we do about? We'll come back. Um, I'm sorry for dominating the conversation right now. But uh, what do we do about the groups the, that would normally be covered oh. by the Voting Rights Act who may not form sufficiently compact, large – Is it would it be okay then to um, not to divide them because they're not covered by the Voting Rights Act, I guess is the, the best way to say it. I'm not advocating for that. But I think it, they're, they're similarly connected in some ways.
19: Well, if you're not a majority-minority district right now, and it would depend on how the numbers play out and where persons are located, whether or not there's right now a majority-minority district. I think we're going to get some of that data next week or not. We'll, 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 next week, I believe the committee will be presented some maps, which kind of gives an idea where certain minority groups and ethnic groups and racial groups are situated in and around the city. And we'll be able to get a better visual picture of where that is. Having said that, if, in fact, there's no majority-minority district currently and there's no ability to draw a majority-minority district in any real way, you have, let's say, a whole bunch of people in North and and a whole bunch of people, um, say, in the pocket of a minority group, and you couldn't realistically draw them into a district um You know, you're not going to create that district just to get a majority-minority district. Uh, On on the flip side, if there's an ability to draw a majority-minority district, whether or not the city can be required to do that would depend on those factors I talked about. Has there been a history of uh, of discrimination? Have they had fair representation? Um, We certainly wouldn't want to purposefully divide anybody on racial grounds. You don't – let's get clear. You should make no decisions – to either divide or compact someone into a group based solely on racial decisions unless there's a potential for a majority-minority district, and then the Voting Rights Act can require that. Other than that, if you purposefully try to pack minority groups into a district, but not for the purpose of creating a majority district, then you have potential claims that you did, you, you there were racial racially gerrymandering.
4: So, one final question is um, under the State Equal Protection Clause, you said that it's not clear yet, given that strict scrutiny applies to sexual orientation. How uh, that. Well, no, I didn't,
19: say, I didn't say it wasn't clear yet. Strict scrutiny didn't apply. Strict
4: scrutiny no, had would apply. i finish
19: my question. Okay.
4: What you said, it wasn't clear how a claim would um, be litigated. However, does that mean that because we're not sure how a claim would be litigated, that we shouldn't. Um, take that into consideration, that strict scrutiny might apply to uh, sexual orientation or uh, potentially um, the Scott slides mentioned the um, language from the MALDEF NAACP Asian Law Center report that the Asian community in particular uses communities of interest as a vehicle. Um, Do we still take that into consideration as we draw maps so that we don't expose ourselves to the risk of litigation? even though that litigation may be speculative?
19: Well, I always recommend considering all the factors that would go into making sure that your action is as uh, is sustainable as possible and would be upheld against any kind of lawsuit. Having said that, without having any parameters on how that lawsuit would actually Come down, the, come down the road, it would be very difficult to say what is, the, what is the decision-making process you need to make with respect to any particular issue. Now, I think we just have to wait to see the maps as to what happens and how people present them before we get into that kind of discussion. Like I told Member Camp uh, last week or before is I think we might be getting putting the cart in front of the horse to some extent when we're talking about hypothetical situations without having seen any data. I mean, I mean let's, so, let's suppose the data comes back and the city is 99 percent um, Native American and one percent the rest of everybody else, this issue is kind of moot, but I, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but we're making guesses at the way the guesses at the way the data is going to come out, and I think once we see the maps, we'll have a better idea what issues we really need to take into consideration.
4: Thanks Matt. I don't know if you know, but city hall was built on the main village of the Native American tribes that. Um, used to populate the confluence of the two rivers here. So maybe it is. <laughs>
0: I, 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 Matt, I, I very much appreciate your, your comments. And both um, as a lawyer and someone who you formerly represented as as the fire chief, um, I compliment you in, in your, your skills, and you, you just explained an extremely difficult section of you know, the constitutional law class that took me for years to, un- to understand, despite the fact that Mr. Justice Kennedy was my teacher, um, who, I often dis- who I often disagreed with in class as well as now in, in some of his voting. Um, a- as a member of a minority group, I hope I'm as, as sensitive to these issues as-, as we all are up here. But the fact of the matter is we are supposed to – correct me if I make a misstatement, please. Apply equal population, then consider the other factors equally, communities of interest, neighborhoods, boundaries, all those other things, and draw the maps and make the best judgment that we can and make that recommendation to the City Council. After having done that, then we look back. That's what you mean, I think, by we getting the cart before the horse. There may not be an issue when we sit down and look at the maps that make sense. Based on the criteria that we're given from from the outset, to even have to be concerned about whether or not there's a voting rights sacrifice. I mean, it's a great academic exercise, but we, it's likely not to be. I mean, if you consider the diversity of the Sacramento City Council over the last 40 years that I've been in this town, it has been and is now probably one of the most diverse city councils, and continuing to have been. In, in anywhere in community that I'm aware of and I and I travel all around the country uh, for, for business so I, I think we just need to be mindful of these issues obviously it's going to be discussed further uh, next week and, and I will just tell the the committee that I'm going to be absent next week and my able-bodied vice chair will, will take the gavel but I you know we're, we're getting way ahead of the you know we're, we're surmising litigation that you know, and very likely is, is not even going to be an issue.
19: That sounded more like a statement than a question, but if you had a question, I would. Or did you want me to respond?
0: I, I guess my question is, is, you've already answered it. That's the, the, the case.
19: The, answer is, is, the short answer is we must start with the equal population rule. That's the constitutional mandate, as we discussed, has been discussed ad nauseum. Federal Voting Rights Act does trump anything that it says in our charter. Okay, let, let's do get that. So we have the Constitution, one person, one vote. We have the Voting Rights Act, which, which is um, incumbent upon the city to make sure it does not violate. When we make, but in making that decision on the one person, one vote, we use all the criteria to get that decision. Right? Those are called the traditional redistricting criteria, and that's always. I don't want to say always been done because I haven't been around for always, but those are the things that all of us here recognize now, have heard, not only here, but understand them as general concepts. Geography, current district lines, the American River, the highways, the neighborhoods, all those things are traditional criteria that you use to go up to make your decision about the one person, one vote. And you don't base it on race because if you base it on race, then you've got a problem with a 14th Amendment violation. So... That's kind of it in a nutshell.
0: Seeing none, I think that's the end of that presentation.
1: Okay. All right, we're on to the discussion calendar then. Item number six, which is the approval of the May 2nd, 2011 committee minutes.
10: Move.
5: Move approval.
1: Okay.
3: Second.
0: It's been moved and seconded that we – The minutes from May 2nd meeting be approved. All in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Any opposed?
1: We are now to public comments for matters not on the agenda, and I have no one signed up to speak. That leads us to committee ideas, questions, and announcements.
0: Members of the committee. May I make one announcement? Yes, you may make an announcement, but I think – Commissioner Porter, or excuse me, Member Porter, keep forgetting we're not a commission. We recommend. We can't We don't have any authority. Member Porter
5: was first. Okay. Thank you, Chair. Um, one thing that I'd like to say is it, that it's nice to see some representation at this meeting. Um, I appreciate the efforts that staff have undertaken in trying to get the word out a little bit more about the um, issue relative to the 16th deadline approaching us. Um, And just generally efforts for individuals to know about what we're doing and the importance of that. Um, On behalf of the committee, I've undertaken some efforts of my own to notify um, representatives of the media, pass that information on to Chair Cherry. um, So if they want to contact anybody here, they'll be able to go through the chair um, for that. But uh, just once again, appreciate how important this effort is. And uh, thanks to everybody for trying to get the word out some more. Thank you. Shirley.
0: Thank
1: you. I just wanted it known for the record and for the public that when we receive correspondence at these meetings, which we received quite a bit today, it will be posted to the web the following morning, and that will just be a practice that we do every Tuesday morning, so just so everyone understands if they need access to that. Other comments by members?
0: Nothing further. Motion to adjourn. I move that we adjourn. Second. Yeah,
16: we already did that. We don't do not have okay. Yeah,
0: there are no comments. We're adjourned. Unanimous.